Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the Oxford Martin School, where we have a talk where we're slowly uh, moving from doing everything in two dimensions to doing things in three dimensions. So I'm here this afternoon with uh, the speaker, uh, Professor Sadita Helm. We don't have a audience here, so we are sort of in a rather odd position of looking at an empty lecture theater, but we have a large audience online and you're very welcome. And we look forward to some questions at the end. So um, Dieter, who's a friend and a colleague at Oxford, is going to be talking this afternoon about what would a sustainable economy look like. Um, Dieter, I think it's fair to describe as a Renaissance man. He has <laughs> made major contributions to uh, academic economics. He has had uh, major success in the private sector, working on energy consultancy. And he has had a number of very important roles in government. Um, very germane to what is happening in the world today, Dieter led a cost of energy review for the UK government a couple of years back. And when I first got to know uh, Dieter, my background is as a biologist, is in the 10 years that he chaired the UK's Natural Capital Committee. And Dieter is one of the three or four people globally who I think has brought together the fields of economics and the environmental sciences in a way that is really changing the way we look at things today. So with no further ado, uh, Dieter, over to you. And um, fascinated to hear about the, uh, what a sustainable economy would look like. Well, thanks very much, Charles. And um, thank you very much for um, uh, inviting me uh, this evening. And um, hello to all you people online. Um, the topic I've chosen uh, to speak about is deliberately broad. So it's not in the fashion of economists nowadays who talk about the inside of the table tennis ball. This is about the table tennis ball as a whole. And I want to talk about what a sustainable economy would look like. But let me contextualize my remarks first. Uh, I'm sure many, if not most of you uh, watching and listening, are disappointed by the outcomes of COP26. The difference might be between some of you and me that I'm not the slightest bit surprised, uh, like the previous 25 COPs, virtually no serious progress has been made on climate change. And I suspect that many of you have forgotten that there is a COP process for biodiversity as well, uh, of which the uh, COP15 is second part delayed until next year. But I don't suspect any of you have noticed the Convention on Biodiversity and the COP process on biodiversity having much difference making much difference to the devastation of biodiversity that's going on around us. So we live in a world in which climate change is ongoing. Every single year since 1990, two parts per million has been added to the atmosphere. And that's, by the way, the only thing that matters, the concentration of carbon, the stock of carbon in the atmosphere and the other greenhouse gases. Uh, the COP processes have done nothing to that. And what I think should alarm anyone is the notion that despite the emissions cuts that took place during the great lockdowns, we went up another two parts per million in concentration in the atmosphere. And there are 
several reasons why the COP processes don't produce uh, outcomes, but uh, a couple of fundamental ones are, firstly, that it focuses on the NDCs of emissions and not on the concentrations. It focuses on territorial national emissions, not on uh, the impact of carbon consumption in any country across uh, uh, the globe. And of course, it focuses on emissions and largely neglects sequestration, whereas the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere is the outcome of the emissions going in and the sequestration coming out. And in addition to the alarming observation that the lockdowns uh, globally made no difference to the increase in concentration in the atmosphere, uh, the other fact, although I'm somewhat uh, questioned about how it, the analysis is done, that appeared last year was the claim that the Amazon is now a net emitter of carbon. And it seems to me that, uh, and it seemed to me for a long time, and why I wrote my book on net zero, is that, you know, the idea of one more heave, one more cop, and we're going to get there, each one is the turning point, you can take the speeches from each of them and just update them from the world leaders, uh, that this one more heave is going to do the job, that doesn't seem to me to be uh, a likely to to work and one needs a, what one might call a plan B. And on biodiversity, well, there seems to be very little evidence that much is happening that's doing anything to slow down the destruction of biodiversity worldwide. And so for anyone concerned about this, and I'm sure all of you uh, listening and watching are uh, equally uh, concerned about these great uh, changes, uh, the question that in my mind is a kind of prior one. So supposing we got this right rather than wrong, supposing we actually wanted to live in a sustainable economy, rather than simply just think about what things should we do to nudge the processes forward to do a bit better on climate change and a bit better on biodiversity, important though those incremental and marginal improvements are, why not ask a different question, which is, so what would have to be true of our world that we could be rest assured that we were actually in a sustainable economy and that rather than our unsustainable economy, which of course, because it's unsustainable, will not be sustained. So <laughs> it's not as if uh, there's a happy ending to what we're doing at the moment. What would, what would this economy actually look like? And uh, I, I'm well through trying to write a book which answers that question. And in doing so, what I'd like to do this evening is paint the broad brushes of what that story looks like. And it's unlike the way in which many people approach these problems, I'm actually going to try to be comprehensive. I'm going to show how all the bits fit together. And I readily accept that on any individual bit, people will have different views and disagree, etc. But what I want to paint for you is a holistic picture of what that economy would look like. And in the process of doing this, I have arrived at a set of uh, conclusions, which are odds to much, if not most of modern economics and modern neoclassical economics in particular. And that's not a new thing I've arrived at. I've been thinking about this for a long time, but I want to illustrate 
this evening some of the main foundational building blocks of a sustainable economy, which are not the same and indeed largely incompatible with the way in which a conventional economist would think about this. So I realize I'm being extremely brave in covering this territory, and I uh, realize that I'm probably going to, in each and every bit, offend uh, the maximum number of uh, conventional economists in this frame. But the least I want to achieve is to challenge the way we're going about it at the moment, because I actually think that many of the current approaches uh, that economists take and the policies they recommend are part and parcel of why we're in the mess we're in and why we're not getting out of the mess uh, we're actually in. So if you define a sustainable economy, you have to start by asking the question, what's its objective? What's it for? Okay. And I have an answer to that, which is, I think, a controversial answer, which is that the objective of a sustainable economy is to leave the next generation with a set of assets at least as good as it inherited. In other words, it's pretty much straight Brundtland report uh, from, I think, 88. And that claim that that's what we're trying to do is already a long way from a conventional economic approach. So if you ask an economist what the objective is, the objective is to maximize utility through time. It's essentially a version, a stripped down version of utilitarianism. What we want is people to be happy through the continuum of time, and we want to share utility through the generations. It's about flows, not stocks. But note I said assets, not uh, utility when I described this. My world is not a world where we're trying to maximize utility. And you might say, well, why is that the case? What's wrong with utility and utilitarianism? What's that got to do with the what a sustainable economy looks like? And my answer to that is in two parts. The first part is essentially an ethical part, and utilitarianism is, ethical, is an ethical claim too. I take the view that what we're trying to do for the next generation, and by the way, I think that we should focus on the next generation, and then each generation can focus on the one that comes after them, is to uh, make sure that future people, next generation, have the wherewithal to choose how they live their lives. So if you want an underpinning for this, this is very much a March Sen capabilities and functionings. It's not uh, utility maximization through time. And so the notion is that what we want for the next generation, what I want for my children and my grandchildren is that they have in place the set of assets which are necessary for them to be able to participate in the economy and the society and choose how to live their lives. Of course, I want my children and my grandchildren to be happy, but I don't go about it by trying to um, buy them as many sweets as possible. What I try to do is to make sure they get a good education, they have a healthy life, uh, and they have around them the set of assets within which to flourish, uh, as Amartya Sen also would put it. Okay. Now, if I ask, what are those assets? Those assets are systems, and they're essentially capitals, and they are natural capital, 
they are the infrastructure systems of physical capital and social capital uh, and human capital to add into those frames. Okay. So I'm focused on citizens rather than consumers, and I want future citizens to have that bundle of opportunities that I have, and I see that in terms of assets as opposed to uh, in terms of utility. The next point is that I don't buy the subjective expected utility maximization idea that the way we treat the future is essentially as if we were maximizing utility now, but instead have a probabilistic um, uh, a picture of the future. Everything in the future can be reduced to probabilities and then we can maximize with it. I'm much more taken with the idea of radical uncertainty that we don't know what the future will hold. And therefore, what we want to do is take a precautionary approach, and that precautionary approach includes within it some of the building blocks that we do know that they will need in order to work out how they're going to live their lives. So it's pretty clear to me that the future generation, the future generations will need a set of natural capital assets, and in particular, renewable natural capital assets, the stuff nature gives us for free. And that these assets are extraordinarily valuable for the future. Why? Because unlike any other part of our functioning economy, these assets go on giving their goodies forever, provided you don't interfere and bring them below the threshold by which they can reproduce. Think about an easy example. Think about herrings swimming around in the North Sea. Provided you don't take too many out, in a thousand years' time they can eat herring. And in 100,000 years' time, they can eat herring. And indeed, they can go on for as long as it takes for evolution to catch up with the herring. And if you think about that, that is an open-ended set of returns through time, rather than you either consume the oil now or you consume it later. You either consume ordinary goods and service now or you consume later, but just once and that's it. And so these assets are valuable beyond the normal way of valuing capitals and flows from those capitals. And that means you have to be incredibly careful that you don't snub out all that future, which is, I mean, it's probably not infinite because there will be a point where evolution will catch up. There will be another ice age, et cetera. But for all practical purposes, and cost-benefit analysis misses all of this out, you have to recognize that yield into the future, and you have to recognize you don't know how good it's going to be. As my uh, colleague and, and friend Colin Mayer often says, when people planted forests at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, they had no idea there would be carbon stores at the end. We don't know what those possibilities are. We want to make sure that those opportunities are available. But we also need for the next generation, pretty clearly, an electricity system, a water system, a transport system, and a fiber communication system. It's pretty clear we're going to need those. And they are all systems as well. They do not come in discrete bits for which cost-benefit analysis applies the marginal kind of calculation to them. So in my foundations for thinking about the sustainable economy, it's assets rather than flows. It's citizens rather than purely consumers. It's uh, capabilities that we're focused on, not utility per se. And given the uncertainty, these core systems are not things which are, in some sense, temporary, 
They're assets in perpetuity for all practical purposes. And therefore, our focus must be on capital maintenance, not on depreciating it. Now, of course, what the electricity system will have to look like to decarbonize is somewhat different from the current one. So the thing we want in place is a set of assets capable of delivering an energy provision so that people can participate in society. And by the way, it's a pretty uh, important thing to say today because there's going to be some people who are going to be extremely cold and actually there'll probably be more deaths because the price of electricity is rising. These are core. Water systems too, um, um, and they may change. We may have widespread um, desalinization, all sorts of other possibilities, but you're going to need water. We haven't worked out how to do human life and food production without them. And fibre lies behind absolutely everything now. So in my world, my sustainable economy, these systems are put in place. They are systems, infrastructures of capitals, which are assets in perpetuity and for which the important thing to ensure that the next generation has them as good as us we must do capital maintenance, okay? To put it in a trivial example, you know, if the next generation is to have roads at least as good as ours, and by the way, they'll need them for the electric cars, you have to fix the potholes, right? And if you don't fix the potholes, the asset is not as good as it was previously. Now, this has some quite radical implications for the way you think about national income, the way you think about accounting, and the way you think about um, what is the sustainable level of consumption that we can pursue in this economy? So the first thing to say is that uh, what I regard as a kind of complete red herring in discussions about um, environmental economics, we don't need to value these things. Right? Since we're not going to depreciate them, we're going to ensure these assets are there for future generations. What's the point of saying they're worth 16,562,052 pence? It's irrelevant. You've just got to have them. Okay. What you've got to do is look to the costs of capital maintenance because these things aren't going to naturally look after themselves. You've got to look at the remedial investment that you need to make to make good um, some of the glaring holes in these assets, which we must do now for future generations, which climate change is the obvious example. And then we might think about enhancements, how we can use uh, our capacity to enhance those opportunities for future generations. So just for a moment, imagine that uh, our Chancellor of the Exchequer is still Chancellor of the Exchequer and not Prime Minister or something else uh, quite shortly. And he stands up, uh, or it might be Rachel Reeves for the opposition if they win an election, stands up and delivers the budget. Now, I've always thought that what I'd like to know on a budget day is, you know, how are we doing? How's it going? Right? That's what I want to know. Before I, you tell me how much you're going to spend, how's it going? And in my world, it's a doomsday book question. You know, what William the Conqueror went down and said, you know, well, how many farms are there? How many stock of this? How many stock of that? How many mill wheels are there? And are they in good state? That's the question you would ask if you came from Mars and landed on this planet and compared one country with another. You'd say, well, a lot of cities here, they've got lots of roads. This place hasn't got lots of roads. You would compare and contrast, okay? So imagine for a moment that the chancellor was actually interested in telling us how well we're doing. 
So the first thing that would happen would be that we'd have a set of accounts, which by the way, accounts virtually never exist in any 101 economics textbook at all, because they're about stocks, not flows. Okay? Uh, and they tend to be, if they are accounts in a Keynesian vague, vogue to work out how much people are spending. But in my world, you wouldn't start by asking, how's aggregate demand? Are the shoppers going out and buying loads of stuff? You'd start by saying, here are our core assets. Are we maintaining them properly? How much money do we have to set aside to maintain those assets intact to meet our intergenerational objective? So it will be straightforward. You have to mend the potholes in the road. Right? You can't claim we didn't spend the money on the potholes fitting the uh, the fixing the potholes in the road, and therefore we've got more money to spend on something else. We're better off. We're not better off. The asset has not been maintained. So I would deduct the capital maintenance cost from the current account of any national income accounts. So what you might think of in a business term as a profit and loss account, and the surplus from taxation available for expenditure will be net of the capital maintenance. Now, it's a bit beyond this discussion, but I've thought about this. Of course, it's not clear whether it's on the national accounts or the private accounts as whether the water companies have done the capital maintenance to look after the state of our rivers and prevent the sewage going in the rivers on a regular basis and um, to stop the depreciation of the quality of the rivers as a result of their sewage discharges. That's a current example. Now, you know, from UK PLC's point of view, from these national accounts, I would incorporate the utility systems in those accounts. And after all, water companies are emanations of the state. They are monopolies regulated by the state that sets the terms, the returns, and all the component parts of them. It's never seemed to me right to take these infrastructures out of the national income accounts and then treat the residual left. Even worse, to take the sale proceeds of a privatization and claim that makes you better off because you sold it and then spend the cash. And that's what we did with the North Sea oil, by the way, as well. Okay. So capital maintenance will be deducted from the taxation revenue to give the expenditure position. Okay. That would be dramatically different. There'd be no question of us saying, let's go out and have a party. Let's get a caseload of bottles and take them into number 10 if we haven't first fixed the tiles on the roof of number 10 and fixed the structure. You know, that old adage, you know, fix the tiles when the sun shines, fix the roof when the sun shines. Actually, just fix the roof first, right? And you don't in, improve your welfare. You're not better off if you didn't fix them and just spend the money down the pub or buying the suitcase of wine bottles to take back to number 10. So that's a radical difference. Now, we then go to the capital side of the balance sheet, which contains the assets, okay? And there are three things we might do to that. We don't need to value these systems because they're in perpetuity. But what we do have to do is having first done the capital maintenance, we then think about remedial investment. It's pretty clear my generation has done a fantastic amount of damage to the climate. That shouldn't be an item of free spending and consumption. We have a guilt, a responsibility for what's up there. And there are things we ought to do to make good 
the inheritance we've damaged for the next generation. In my generation, the amount of damage we've done to biodiversity is quite staggering in this country. Charles will know much more about this than me, but we've done a lot of damage. So remedial investment comes first. That's a straight claim, okay? But then we might say, but we want to do enhancements. We want to make the future generation better off because there's these fantastic opportunities out there. And there are lots and lots of them in natural capital in particular to take forward. If we enhance those assets, then the next generation is getting a better set of assets than we inherited. And it's perfectly reasonable that they should pay for those enhancements. That's what borrowing is for. So we should give them better assets and they should pay for it by inheriting the debt that is incurred to do that. So this is borrowing for investment, not for consumption, which is what we're doing at the moment, consumption-based borrowing, okay? And uh, it's tied to those assets that are being added to the uh, frame going forward. Um, and then the debt on the balance sheet is essentially debt, which is balanced balance sheet by assets, assets liabilities. It would be as if the water companies had not borrowed to pay out extra dividends, not borrowed to gear up the balance sheet for financial engineering purposes, but when we privatized the water companies, their borrowing would have been for capital investment for the next generation's benefit, enhancing the assets. And I assure you the balance sheets would look completely different from what they are now. And by the way, I think that was the intention of privatization. And it's part of my critique of what's going on in the water industry uh, and why what privatization has done has not been uh, in any sense sustainable. But you can see what the logic of this is. So what would emerge out of this balance sheet approach is a macroeconomics which essentially defines that level of consumption which is sustainable as the residual of what's left after we have done the capital maintenance but not after we've done enhancements because the enhancements are being paid for by the next generation and i think it would be pretty easy to show that that level of consumption is quite a lot lower than the current level of consumption um, and I need to add two twists to that. In the sustainable economy, the prices would include the cost of pollution. The polluter pays principle would apply. After all, and here I'm common ground with conventional economists, an efficient economy is one where all the costs are internalized. It's extremely inefficient not to price pollution. Right? So the carbon price would be in there. Um, and, and so would be the costs of lots of the other things that are produced for us by companies. So we are the polluters, we are doing the consuming, we as the polluters should pay, the oil companies and all these other people are producing stuff for us, which we are consuming. Okay? It's pretty easy to show that since we're not paying for the pollution costs of what we're doing, we're living beyond our sustainable means. Okay? So again, the sustainable consumption path is adjusted for the costs of the pollution going forward. And of course, we have to have a savings ratio in order to support what we're doing in the economy. And that's that, that uh, uh, savings ratio, savings to equal investment, et cetera. Uh, ultimately, that debt 
has to come from somewhere that's supporting the assets on the balance sheet, and therefore we'll have to save more. We also have to do lifetime savings as well, so that's all about pensions and all those kind of components. And quite clearly, we're not saving sufficient to meet those criteria. Now, some environmentalists, some very green environmentalists, might still be with me so far in this argument, but they won't like the next bit. The next bit is, there's no reason why economic growth can't go on. So this no growth notion is not necessary in a sustainable economy, provided you understand what the sources of growth are and how they enhance our and future generations' possibilities. So look around in this university. I doubt there's ever been a time when science is advancing as fast as it currently is. I doubt there's ever been so much technical innovation. You know, in my lifetime, I've gone from a typewriter to a computer, to a laptop, to an internet, and a mobile phone, and internet banking. This is all new. And in Charles's world, what genetics has done in, in our lifetime is just stunning. These are just part of it. AI, think about the envelope, the cornucopia of technical advances out there. So one of the core assets in my sustainable economy is knowledge and ideas, and innovation through enhancing knowledge and ideas increases the possibilities for, for us and future generations, and that is economic growth. So in my world, you go from the current unsustainable consumption path, and you drop down onto a sustainable consumption path, but it can carry on growing okay, through time. And what you don't do, which is what we're doing at the moment, and I'm amazed that lots of environmentalists seem to be in favor of this stuff, we are trying to boost consumption. All the QE, the deficits, et cetera, it's true they've been supposed to build back better, et cetera, but the majority of these stimulus have been to get people to do more shopping, maybe online instead of going to the shops, to spend more, to consume more. Because the Keynesian argument is if we consume more, it'll be multiplied through the economy, and then economic growth will result because people invest, et cetera, because there's more consumption. My starting point is, we want to maximize the sustainable consumption path through time. And since we're miles above it, who thinks that printing an enormous amount of QE is consistent with addressing climate change, biodiversity loss, and a sustainable framework? If the borrowing was to enhance the physical infrastructures and the natural capital, having first maintained them properly, fine, let's borrow to invest because that's what my balance sheet does, but that's not what we're doing. Here you look at the accounts of TfL, Transport for London. They have spent the last few years borrowing to cover their current expenditure. That's just an extraordinary state of affairs, right? and that is an unsustainable one. So there are dimensions of this which will immediately um, uh, occur as alarm bells to lots of different interests um, and lots of particular intellectual traditions. But I want to go beyond simply saying that's what I think a sustainable economy should look like onto what would we actually have to do to get from here to there. And 
in my green and prosperous land, I spent a lot of time spelling out what we do in river catchments, in uplands, etc., in a UK con context, which is part of a 25-year plan, which I had a privilege of being involved in. Um, but in this context, I think the starting point is what would the core institutional framework look like? What would we have to do to embed this? And of course, one of the things that will be screaming out of this framework is, well, what's the distributional frame of this? Okay. So what about environmental justice? What about social justice in this frame? Well, my starting point is back to the citizens. We're going to provide every citizen in my sustainable economy with a set of assets which enables them to participate in society with energy, transport, water, communications, uh, natural capital in its full form. So that's putting in place the assets so everybody in society, as citizens, not as individual consumers, and independent of income, has access to these systems. But it's pretty obvious that while that would be in a massive step forward, and we wouldn't be having the energy pricing debate that we're having uh, literally today um, out there, and we would advance the welfare of many in our society a long way, it's not sufficient. Because you still have to consider providing income for the other stuff, of which one, of course, is food, even though the food system's been placed and, and close to um, uh, Charles's uh, 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 heart in this frame. So people need income. So I am strongly in favour of a particular version of universal basic income. Um, again, I want to provide citizens with the capacity to participate in society. And for that, in addition to the assets, they need a minimum income. It may not be as high as they need in the current world because they'll be getting these infrastructure systems already. Okay? Um, but uh, I don't want this as an open-ended notion that politicians can compete from election to election, just simply increase it, like the discussion about universal benefit, etc. So I am very much in favour of tying it to the national dividend. So there is a surplus on all these assets, and particularly on non-renewable natural capital. There is a revenue flow from the environmental taxation. And in my green and present land, I set that up as a nature fund, but actually thinking about the sustainable economy, it's broader than that. And if, for example, something like the coronavirus comes along, we can't go on pretending we're just as well off as we were the day before, and there's no costs or impact as the current, dare I say it, Keynesian argument is essentially trotted out as. We have to face up to those things. So it has to be tied to the performance of those national accounts and those balance sheets and the surplus of taxation to spend after capital maintenance. And I've kind of thought out that in some detail as to how that fits together. Then I've set my citizens up. I've got them in place. They've got their basic uh, assets to participate. I met the Brundtland condition going forward and I've given them the income to go with it. Of course, there are taxation consequences, but it can't be sustainable live in a world where a small number of individuals can have bigger environmental negative footprints than whole countries and that rich people with billions can play around in space tourism when our 
environment is going towards three degrees and more, and we're destroying the biodiversity. It's completely unacceptable. And um, no sustainable economy would, would allow the kind of uh, what I think is unsustainable inequality in acid ownership that we currently have. Now, you can argue about how far you want to go, but in my world, that's tied to how much basic income do you want, right? Because the other claims for enhancing and protecting the assets have already been deducted. So next, you need a regulatory set of institutions. Nothing in my world says this should be a statist approach. This isn't a socialist economy. It's an economy where we want to produce the things we produce as, as efficiently as possible. There's a lot of scope for competitive markets, um, but because lots of these features of the economy have natural monopoly elements, you have to have regulation. And currently our five-year period reviews for our core utilities are extremely inadequate, uh, down to one level, um, uh, um, you know, allowing companies to just gear up their balance sheets without matching it with investment, uh, making dividends equal profits without any retained earnings. This is just bad regulation. Um, and I've written extensively about that, particularly in regard to energy, but also uh, water as well. And then finally, and this is the, the difficult question, which is, but nobody will vote for this, right? Um, to which I, my answer is, yeah, fine. Well, you know, if you don't want to vote for this and you don't want to have a sustainable economy, you will have an unsustainable one. And then you're going to hit a brick wall. And it's three degrees and it's a lot less biodiversity and it's going to be very unpleasant. So it's not that you can avoid this, right, this pattern. It's just a question of which way do you want to get there? Do you want to get there in a benign way and get loads of the benefits of this economy? It's a great place to live in, this economy. Much more, much more social capital, much more engagement, much fairer society, much greener society, better mental health, better physical health, better air quality. You know, you name it, this has got lots of attraction. But if you don't want to do that, then you're going to hit the brick wall. Okay? But the real problem is, is the old democratic problem of the tyranny of the majority which Tocqueville wrote about, John Stuart Mill wrote, wrote about, on why people have constitutions. You know, when the Constitution of the United States was set up, the key issue was to prevent a majority tyrannizing a minority. That's part and parcel that. Well, my generation is tyrannizing the prospects for my children and grandchildren. They don't have a seat at the table. And there are lots of thoughts about how that could be done, you know, future generations, representatives, ministers for the future, and all that kind of stuff. I think it has to be constitutional. Just like there are certain basic rights that the majority cannot overturn without super majorities to do so, I think a principle that the next generation should inherit a set of assets at least as good as us should be one of the cardinal constitutional principles. And then my generation exercising its democratic rights has to work within that constraint. But I have some other thoughts on constitutions too. But I was asked to finish at 22. It's 22. So I shall stop at that point, Charles. Thank you very much, Dirk. If we have an audience, there will be a round, a rousing round of applause. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Clara. Um, I'm going to take Chairman's prerogative and, uh, and ask a question to begin with. I'm going to ask two questions. And, and, and first is not about the future world, but the world we're in now. Mm -hmm. And 
if you look at some of the rhetoric about building back better, yes. and in particular what Biden had hoped to yes. implement. Um, so two questions. In principle, would that have been a positive move, if not wholly towards the world that you want, at least in that right direction? And of course, how it's actually turned out with the um, squabbles in the States and what's happened here has been far short of that what they hope but in principle would it have been good well um the two parts to that and by the way it's interesting that biden went to recently make a speech about infrastructure so i think it's philadelphia where the bridge collapsed as he arrived as you can see the state yes. of the infrastructure <laughs> so should you be addressing the state of infrastructures yes and it's very interesting that anglo-saxon countries uh, but i would stress the uk and the us have generally pretty terrible infrastructure Nobody in their right minds would locate a factory in Britain because you say, wow, the infrastructure is mm -hmm. fantastic, right? And the United States is a story of neglect, etc. So, of course, you want to put the, put, put the infrastructure right. But it's capital maintenance. The problem with Build Back Better is it's two trillion of borrowing, right? So it's saying, you, the next generation, we are going to make the assets better, but you're going to pay to do the capital maintenance. We're not going to enhance them very much. We're just going to patch and mend. We're going to fix the potholes in the road. And that's what's wrong, right, with that equation. So, so in my so world, the money should be spent, but it should be spent out of the current Current taxation. Than... Current taxation. Yeah. Because we, are, we have the duty to maintain these assets in perpetuity, yeah. right? And in the natural capital renewable case, of course, you know, uh, 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 as we we're talking earlier, the, the critical thing is, if you don't do the maintenance, you've lost the benefits forever. That's what extinction's doing, right? So it's not just the component parts. And actually on Biden, you have to say, like Obama, you know, cut out the rhetoric. He's presiding over an enormous expansion of the fossil fuel industries in America. Mm. And he's begging the Saudi Arabians to increase oil output. But Obama was the president for the fossil fuel industries. He presided over that huge expansion of fossil fuel output in the United States, taking over 10 million, 10 million barrels a day. And when he makes speeches at COP, and then these things anger me, mm. you, you know, tells the young that they must, you know, do these things, do as I say, but not as I did. Mm. Right? So I find the direction towards capital investment and maintenance fine, but the 2 billion is not net of um, uh, it's not gross of um, sustainable consumption. It should be net of that. But, but I mean, you eloquently said what we've done with our with running down our assets, yeah. and just the scale of remediation. Yeah, is it feasible to pay for that from taxation? Might this be a one-off where we have to borrow from the future, and that once we have got our assets into a bit better state, then we could move. To, well, to your uh... supposing you're talking to me and I'm I'm my granddaughter, right? And you say, "Look, I buggered up your world so much, mm. um, 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 granddaughter, and it's such a mess. And I'm not willing to face up to the consequence of what I've done. So I want you to pay to make good the damage that I've done for you." So, so I think right? the argument I'm making is it, it's, it's not in the principle, which I yes. agree with you, but right. just on the practicality, okay, whether it so, would be possible to raise enough money to right. do the remediation right. from this generation. So, so you'd want to spread it over time, yep. right? That's a practical issue. Mm. So, you know, 
you know, going out and saying, by the way, I want to cut your standard of living by the following amount tomorrow morning is not exactly going to win the next general election, right? I understand that, okay? Um, and there might be a structure which you spread it out, okay, through time. But the question is, why would I believe you, right, that you are then going to make good? Why wouldn't I believe that you're going to spend large sums of money on current consumption and make me pay in the future? That's what's going on at the moment. Mm. It's not even that I'm getting something, at least the things are being maintained properly in the future. You're borrowing against me for your maintaining your standard of living despite the financial crash, despite the coronavirus lockdowns, etc. Mm. That's the point. And, and the way out of that might just be, well, we'll just let inflation rip now. Because mm -hmm. that's how quite mm. a lot of this is yeah. going to get written off, as it was in the 1970s. Yes. And that's you and me paying, yes. right, correctly, but um, we just won't realise what's happened. Yes. Right? <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and, you know, I mean, look at the 70s. We had two years of 25% inflation, followed by three years of 10% inflation. When Mrs Thatcher came to power, there wasn't any debt. It was all written off. Right. Well, it's 5% today, and who knows what it would be. No, 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 it's not. In the RPI, time. which we always mm. work from, is 8.2. Mm. Right? Um, now, it's true that the CPI is lower, but as was pointed out by the statisticians at the time, the reason the CPI was chosen was because it was lower. Right. I'd love to ask more questions, yep. but I'm going to go to, um, to the audience, and the audience have a chance to vote on what questions uh, that they'd like to put to you. So the first one, which has the most votes, is from Pippa. How can we foster a sustainable economy in a capitalist world? Do we need a system change or should we be encouraging the micro changes we see in existing companies, i.e. net zero targets, reducing waste refill shops? Okay, so there are, there are two bits to this. Um, the first bit is, you know, is capitalism responsible for all of this? My view is no, capitalism isn't responsible for this. Um, uh, and pure socialism of the form that's been tried is much worse. It's not how we organize production that's the problem, it's the incentives, prices, and constraints that are placed on the way in which the economy functions, of which the polluter pays is the greatest. So the modern fashion, and I know I'm going to offend a lot of people again now, is to say, oh, well, we must get the boards of these companies to take stakeholders seriously, not just pursue profits. They must look after the environment, adopt net zero targets, and all the ESG stuff. And I stand back from this and say, well, isn't it the job of government to put the rules in place so they have to pursue an environmentally benign course? Right? And the truth is that governments have given up on actually trying to do the environment. And so they palm it off onto company boards. And I'm slightly offended by the idea of some uh, plutocrat or chief executive in a large uh, company with market power deciding what's best for us, how much to put into social as opposed to environmental stuff, when they're going to end their pollution, right? And remember, it's all for us. We're buying the stuff, right? And, and so my take on this is that, no, the right way to do this is to start with the functions of society and the state and to set the rules within which markets, capitalism, social, whatever you like, functions. And it's a great illusion that there's either the state or capitalism. The only reason why markets function is because there's a monopoly on violence. There are laws that enforce contracts 
and set the rules and regulation of the way they function. I, I mean, I, years ago, I used to ask my students what they thought was the most capitalist market. And they would tell me it's the stock exchange. And then I'd say, what do you think is the most regulated market in the world? The answer is the stock exchange. Mm -hmm. right? And I don't want to live in a society where rich people running large companies with market power decide what my future environment is going to look like. They haven't done a good job so far, but it's not their fault. It's our fault for not putting in place the laws, the regulation and making polluters pay. So are you encouraged at all that we are seeing the state getting more involved in uh, regulation in the order of society? Now, I know and I agree with you that that QE is uh, a, um, a funny way of getting involved. But as The Economist said, I think it's the week before last, and they were against it, that there has been an advance of the state over the last five years. And even if they're not doing what you'd like at the moment, has that changed the political mood that might nope. allow the state to get more involved than the orthodoxy I, I, of the 70s? I definitely think that the 30 years of privatization, liberalization mm. um, and competition as sort of started in the 80s is over. Yeah. I definitely think when we get to write the history books, the turning point was the financial crisis. Yeah. And, um, you know, remember, actually since 2000, we've been running um, most of the world economies at negative real interest rates. And it's extraordinary, right? It's just absolutely extraordinary. So, so I think that's part of it. But on the, the growth of regulation, etc., there's a world difference between having smart regulation and just having more regulation. So, for example, I'd like a carbon tax, but I've been putting together what I call my optician slide on the energy sector at the moment. I did it several years ago. So, you know, you go to the opticians, you've got glasses, I've got glasses, and it says up there the letters, you know, A, B, C, and you try to read as many as you can down the list. And, you know, you even try and outsmart the optician, you know, see if you can remember what they were so <laughs> that you come back round. They have tests to do that. So I had the equivalent of one slide, and I put on there, every single intervention in the energy sector in the last five years. And you can't read a single line on my slide, right? And there is no official that I know of and no minister who could tell me what all those interventions are. Do you think the energy sector is in a better state today than it was five years ago? It's an utter mess. You know, the supply competition models uh, imploded. We've got the price of electricity tied to the price of gas, even though mo many of the costs of electricity got nothing to do with the price of gas. It, you know, we have a, a, a let's intervene here, let's intervene there. What you need is some principles for regulation. You need the architecture of the blue to paste principle. You need carbon prices, carbon border adjustments. Yes, you need other things as well, right? But what we've got is all the other things as well. No carbon price. And um, we delude ourselves that if we pursue our net zero target, when we get there, we're no longer going to be causing climate change, which, of course, is nonsense. Um, Dieter, a question from Peter Thompson, which is about Kate Raworth's donut economy. And Kate has actually spoken uh, here about this. How realistic is the Raworth donut economy model? And what are the assessments of his application by Amsterdam? Do you find donut economics are useful and just no. conceptual no. things? No, no interest whatsoever. Might you just say 30 seconds what it is, just for the for anyone in the audience who doesn't know it? Um, not really. Um, um, I mean, it just doesn't interest me. Right. Right? Full stop. Right? Um, uh, uh, I mean, 
it's like many of these propositions. There are bits of it which are quite interesting and, and, and you might want to do. You know, uh, you might want to do something about inequality, all sorts of other component parts. But in itself, as a coherent answer to the question, what does a sustainable economy look like? No. Mm. Do, do you find planetary boundaries a helpful concept? Um, it's not unhelpful. Mm -hmm. um, and clearly, in some obvious sense, if an economy is sustainable, it's going to be within planetary yeah. boundaries. My, my difficulty with, with, with the, the concept itself is it's a nice, neat, simple concept, is I'm not sure that it actually does have a single answer. Yes. I think it's yes. much more complicated, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you ask me, what's the planetary boundaries of X going to be when we're at three degrees, which we're well on the course for, um, nothing at COP26 is going to make much difference to that process. And, and so, you know, I mean, you're the, you're the scientist, but it's a set of interlocking systems, right? And so if we're thinking about the sustainable economy, it's probably not the world which has the Amazon intact because it's gone, yeah. right? It's not one that's got the great um, deciduous forests of Europe. We've cut them all down, right? So the world is already a man-made environment. So I should say human-made environment, shows my age. Um, uh, and, you know, what the moving parts of that are and how we're going to compromise between them. It's much more complicated than saying on the 13th of July, we cross yeah. the, the boundary. Um, I, I'm going to merge two questions from David Meller and uh, Brenda Aisley. Um, I'd like to hear Professor Helm address how we can move away from the great god of ever-expanding GDP. So how useful is GDP? Well, not very. No, you're right. You're right. So, so is there a better metric? Um, well, plenty of better metrics in this frame. And indeed, my framework has one metric to it, which, which is, is the, capital. The, the starting mm. point is, have you maintained the state of the assets yeah. uh, in good enough shape? And is your consumption sustainable at basis? But the only cutting cross bit is, I'm very careful to say, economic growth is fine, provided it's driven by ideas and technology. The, the, in other words, the capacity that the human mind with the ideas that go with it, open up the possibilities to us. I am a lot better off because I have an iPhone in my pocket compared with my Olympus portable typewriter with Tipex and carbon paper, which virtually none of the audience can probably remember, mm. right? Um, uh, this is an advance. This is an advance to human possibilities, right? That means we can consume at a higher level, but only when we've made good our obligation to the next generation. So, so it... Is that like the argument of trying to decouple GDP from... from um... No, just, just get rid of GDP. Yeah. The problem with GDP is it's a flows measure. Yeah. Right? So... And that's what the national income accounts are geared to. Yeah. And it's about uh, aggregate demand, aggregate supply that's met for it. I mean, the, the, the GDP accounts we have were essentially a Keynesian invention in the run-up to the Second World War because you needed the accounts and Stone and others put together to motivate what was at that stage mm. the general theory. I'm not interested in flows much. I'm not disinterested, but my primary focus is on stocks and assets. And a set of accounts, my accounts, you know, when, when the Chancellor comes back the following year, it's Rachel Reeves or whoever it is, right? They will then look at that. They will tell me how my doomsday book has advanced, right? That is a measure of progress within the scope of the intergenerational obligation. A question from Rachel Morrow. 
Um, this all makes a lot of sense for developed economies. But what about developing countries? Where developing the kind of assets you talk about as essential uh, are almost necessarily zero sum for the environment? So, so um, that's an incredibly important question. Um, uh, so the Brundtland report was the, called the North-South report, okay? And the driving politics behind it was that the North should enable the South, as it was then defined, uh, you know, developing countries, to develop in a sustainable way. And when it comes to climate change in particular, it's blindingly obvious that unless the North contributes to the South or the modern equivalent, we're going to fry. Okay? So if you look at the future sources of emissions, it's not in Europe, right? We've deindustrialized de almost <laughs> completely now. It's probably not really very much in the United States, although both the United States and especially Germany are burning as much coal as they possibly can mm. at the moment. Um, 25% uh, of German uh, electricity comes from coal still. And dirty coal at that. A very dirty coal, and they're not going to phase it out to 238, I think, is the date. Poland's not so. Okay. But, you know, it's going to be in India. It will be partially in China, although the Chinese economy may come to a shuddering halt uh, sometime fairly soon. It's going to be in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, if you think about where, who the top three carbon emitters are going to be in 250, right? China and India, but maybe Nigeria, right? You know, Nigeria's mm. population will double by then. Mm. This is going to be bigger than the United States, right? And the growth rates in GDP terms in, in Africa are really fast. So it's very simple. You know, we have to transfer. So this is why it's even more politically difficult. We should make some contribution to help develop the physical assets and protect the natural capital, renewable assets, the Amazon, et cetera, on, and we should help to do that because we are beneficiaries of that. It's a perfectly reasonable aspiration to live our lifestyle. But I give an example from COP26, another reason why I'm, you might think I'm completely cynical about uh, COP26 uh, and have been about the previous 25. So the climate fund, Terribly exciting. We're going to provide $100 billion a year to help developing countries to adjust. Right? Well, we are, we're actually going to provide about 75, which is what we've constantly done. This is a country, by the way, we've lowered the aid budget from 0.7 to 0.5% of GDP, and that's vastly popular. Okay? Do you know that 75 billion is the annual dividend of Saudi Aramco? Right? It just puts it in perspective, mm -hmm. right? We're just not at the door. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back to my starting point. If you want a sustainable economy, and it has to be one that has a reasonable climate, you've got to solve the global dimensions of emissions and sequestration. That means you have to transfer some of your consumption opportunities into investments in developing countries. Are we likely to do that? No. Nope. What's the consequence of that? You will have an unsustainable economy and you'll get three degrees plus. Right? Dieter, we're out of time, but I want yes. to slip in one final question. And uh, this is from, it has just jumped from my machine, my machine, and forgive me, I haven't got the name, but I remember the question. And the question is uh, basically, what would you like individual citizens in the UK to do to help try and push this agenda? Okay, so 
the essence of my approach is that it's us, the citizens, who are responsible for the pollution, right? That companies do pollution for us. I go and fill up my car with fossil fuels. Actually, it's quite a lot more efficient than quite a lot of electric cars, but that's just an aside, okay? I will probably buy something at the train station on the way home wrapped in plastic in Marks and Spencers, okay? It's for me. It's not some ghastly old company dug it up mm. that we should glue ourselves to the door. It's me that's buying the stuff, right? And so one of the things I do in my Net Zero book is I suggest that everyone would keep a carbon diary. And they just right, take a typical day and have a hazard of how much carbon's involved in the palm oil that's produced, that's in the breakfast, the packaging, the energy to flush the loo, the loo paper, the clothes they're wearing, the travel to work, you know, God forbid they go on a package holiday, etc. You just take it for a day and then say to yourself, look, what I've got to do, what we've all got to do, is take that carbon diary and rewrite it in 250 and take nearly all of that out. And that tells you as an individual what's at stake here that we as individuals will have to do. And I'm, I think that's a good point. But it's all about consumption. It's all about us as individuals. And we are the people who change this frame. But um, um, I'd like to be deluded enough to think that you might also vote for a someone who would advise, uh, advance these possibilities and vote for a proper constitution. <laughs> um, I'm not utopian in my imagination. Dieter, thank you. It was Paul John Martin who asked that, that question. Uh, we have run out of time. Uh, this has been a fabulous conversation. Um, completely chock full of uh, really exciting and also challenging ideas. Uh, Dieter, we look forward to uh, your book coming out. W when would it be? I'm going to take my time and try and get it right. <laughs> and I imagine there are enough people listening today who could come up with enough objections, which I'll all have to deal with. Because this, this one, I, the, I mean, previous books I've written fast for a purpose and an argument and a policy context. This one is different for me. I, I really want to pin down each and every one of the arguments. I, I should have said in my introduction that um, that Dieter writes extraordinarily well, and I do encourage you to uh, look at some of the other books he's written. Dieter, thank you again for coming in. It's been a fabulous talk. Thank you.